book of Judges. We're in Judges chapter 4 this morning. Judges 4. As we go to the Lord in prayer, do you believe that God loves you, that he's good, that he even likes you? That might even be hard for you to comprehend. I know God loves me, but I wouldn't really think that he likes me, that he desires to spend time with me, that God wants to deliver you. God has the power to be able to deliver us from sin. And so as we go to prayer, let's, let's contemplate those things. Father, it's so easy for us just to say words like, you love us, and that you're good, and Lord, that you desire to spend time with us, that you have the power to deliver us. But God, many times in our lives, uh, we struggle with, with receiving that. So this morning, as we study your word, would you lead us and guide us into truth, and would you set us free from sin? We all struggle with different areas of sin in our lives. God, would you bring that breakthrough? Just please set aside distractions, give me clarity in speaking your word, and we pray there would be great fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. It's hard to imagine the Apostle Paul struggling with sin, but he did. In Romans 7, he's writing and he's saying, the things I want to do, I don't do. Ever been there? You've got a list and you're saying, I want to do this, I want to do that. Whether it's in your spiritual life or financial life or physically, you're saying, here's some goals I want to do, but for some reason they just don't ever happen. And then there's these things that we don't want to do, these sinful things, but yet we find ourselves doing them over and over. So Paul, he cries out and he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm sick and tired of this struggle and compromise in my life. Notice that he doesn't say, how? How am I going to be delivered from this body of death? The deliverance has to come from a power that's greater than the Apostle Paul. Then he goes on and he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He answers the question, deliverance is found in Jesus Christ. God loves us to the point where he gave us his son for forgiveness of sin, but also in the gift of Jesus Christ comes deliverance from sin to be able to overcome struggles with sin. What we find in Israel in this particular period of their history is they're struggling with a pattern of sin. They're going back to idolatry. God will then turn them over to slavery. They cry out to God. God raises up a judge. But then when things get peaceful, they return to their idolatry. They go back to this cycle of sin and cry out to the Lord once again. And so the title of this message is Deliver Me because that's where Israel's at. A lot of times that's where we're at as well. As we'll travel through this chapter, there's kind of three scenes or three acts and three scenarios. So verse one of chapter four When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Ehud was the left-handed deliverer that God had raised up, the judge. But as soon as he's passed away, now Israel goes back to idolatry. They go back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord. So we have to ask the question, were they really following the Lord or were they following this leader that God had given to them? And it's very important for us to make sure that we're following Jesus Christ, that we're not following a person. We're not following a man. We're not following a woman. We're not following a mentor. We're not following a pastor. We're not following a movement. We're following Jesus Christ. Because every person is sinful. They're fallen. They're going to let you down. They're going to (laughs) die. You may move. They may move. 
a variety of different scenarios. And as soon as they're out of their life, if you walk away from the Lord, it shows something about us. So make sure that you're following Christ because he's the only one who is our foundation. Verse 2 So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth Hagalim. Last week, God delivered them to the Moabites and the Amorites. This time, it's the Canaanites. God uses a variety of different things to get our attention. God sells them into slavery. Just about 200 years prior, God was delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. Now he's putting them into slavery because of their sin and because of their idolatry. This brings us to our first scene, kind of the first stop on the bus ride, if you would, and it's the distress of the oppressed. And we find it in verse 3, the distress of the oppressed, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. When it comes to this topic of deliverance in our lives, like the children of Israel, we have to first experience distress. If we're comfortable in our oppression, if we're comfortable in our slavery to sin, we're not going to cry out to God. We're not going to do what the Apostle Paul did and said, who could deliver me from this body of death? I'm tired of this. I'm, I'm sick of this. And they got to the point where they didn't want Jabin to be commanding their lives, being in charge of their lives. Jabin's got 900 chariots as the king of Canaan. We'll find that Israel doesn't have any. Militarily, they're outmatched. And Jabin would teach them, treat them harshly. And our sin, it treats us harshly. So what's the struggle in your life? What's the struggle in my life? Are we tired of it? Have we gotten to the place where we're saying, I don't like what anger does with my relationship with God, how it affects the people that I love the most, and we're distressed, and we're saying, God, would you do a work in my life? I've tried everything that I know possible. Is it lust? Is it sexual sin? And you have that pleasure for the moment, but that it leads to more bondage, and you're empty, more than you ever have been before, and you cry out to the Lord in distress and say, Lord, please, would you bring victory in, in my life? Is it the love of money and the love of things, the love of pleasure, and you have more money than you've ever had before, but yet you find yourself crying out, vanity, it's empty, it doesn't fulfill me. I, I keep looking to this false God of money to satisfy my needs, but I've got a God hole, a God vacuum. I need to cry out to the Lord. Hey, but if you're comfortable in your sin, just kick back and get on your phone and check out ESPN and follow the World Cup and do some reading about the NFL or the NBA or because you're not ready to change. You're happy in it. You're content with it. It's okay. There, there's no distress there. There has to be an appropriate level of uncomfortableness in our lives to say, no, I don't want this anymore. This is bringing damage. This is hurting my relationship with God. It's hurting those that I love the most. And they got to this place and they cried out to the Lord. They're desperate before God. And God hears their cries. In verse 4, and we see God now raising up a deliverer. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. God's amazing mercy and grace. You'd think maybe that he would forsake the nation of Israel because... 
of their disobedience, but God honors his covenant and his commitment to Israel, even when they're unfaithful and he hears their cries. And this Father's Day, look at the ultimate Father, our Heavenly Father, and he hears our cries, even when we're in bondage from our foolish decisions. He loves us, and he responds once again by bringing about a deliverer, speaking the word of God through Deborah. Let's learn about Deborah. Deborah, her name means bumblebee. That's if you look it up in the Hebrew, it means bee. And it's kind of a funny name, isn't it? And in Hebrew culture, meaning of names meant more than how a name sounded. In American culture, we go with how a name's going to sound. You think about what are they going to be called in elementary school? You know, what rhymes with this particular name? Not so with Hebrew names. It was what's the meaning? And it fits her as you study her life because a bee is very discerning. God's given a bee an ability to, with their antennas to go out and find the, the right flower. And Deborah is very discerning. Bees are very industrious, aren't they? They get a lot done. They're, they're hard workers and they're able to work together. And Deborah's industrious. She's going to rally a nation here. And then also we know about bees that there's very, they're very sweet. And Deborah has a sweet side to her as she brings the word of God, but also bees sting, don't they? And Deborah, as she'll speak the word, there's a powerful punch that comes with Deborah. So the word tells us that she's a prophetess. She's the wife of Lapidoth. She was judging Israel at the time. So this is kind of our second act, act two, and it's the voice of encouragement. The first was the distressed of the oppressed, and now we have this voice that's bringing encouragement from God's word. And when we're in bondage to sin, how many times do we need a voice of encouragement? Not a voice of condemnation, but a voice of encouragement of God loves you. And look at what God has said in his word. Now step out into what the Lord has said. I bet you can look back at deliverance the Lord's brought in your life and usually there was an encourager along the way. Somebody that God had used to really encourage you. So now Deborah is this voice of an encourager. Now for some, it's a little bit confusing. They don't know quite what to do with it. It makes them uncomfortable that Deborah was a prophetess. But there's many female prophets, prophetess in the scriptures. We find that Miriam was a prophet, Moses' sister. Also, Huldah in the Kings. Anna in the New Testament. Philip's four daughters, they prophesied as well. And I'm going to take just a few minutes as we look at Deborah's life to point out biblical womanhood. We see some great examples of biblical womanhood. So ladies, you can kind of get a picture of what God intended for womanhood. And I, where else are you going to learn that, right? Where else are you going to go, what does a godly woman look like? It's, it's important for us as men to understand and also know what God's heart is for biblical womanhood. So the first thing to consider is she spoke the word of God under the authority of God. She spoke the word of God under the authority of God. And as we studied First and Second Timothy, we found that elders in a church are to be men. We can go back online to the church's website and look at that. Those that are going to teach doctrine, those that are going to practice church discipline, that God has given that position and that order over to men. It's not that men are greater by any means. It's that God has just ordained this type of leadership. And what we find with Deborah is she's speaking God's word, but under, underneath the authority that God set up. She's not going to try to be the leader or general 
to take the men into battle. She's going to recruit a man, Barak, to come and be that leader to take them into battle. So ladies, as you try to sort this out in your own life, is speak the word of God. God wants you to speak the word of God like Deborah and speak it underneath the authority that God has set up without trying to usurp the authority that God's put into the church or usurp the authority even in your own home as God has given you a husband who is to be that servant leader, that head inside of your home. So we go on and we look at verse 5. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. This is eight to ten miles north of Jerusalem. And I really appreciate this about Deborah. To me, it's another aspect of biblical womanhood is people came to her. People came to her. Ladies, as you love the Lord and as you study the word and as you speak the word and have the wisdom of God... People are going to come to you. Deborah didn't walk around, pounding her Bible, looking for people to set straight. I'm going to get them. Israel's rebellious to God. They need to hear the message of God. Come, come and listen to me. I float like a butterfly. I sting like a bee. I must be Deborah, right? She didn't do that. She's just sitting underneath this palm tree, eight to ten miles out of the way, just enjoying the Lord. But there was something about her relationship with God that was attractive. People wanted to come to her and people wanted to listen to her. And I think that's a great lesson for men and women. Let people come to you hungry to hear God's word. Verse 6, Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Ahinomi, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and with his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. Another attribute of Deborah is she exhorted men to do what God had commanded them. Let me say that again. She exhorted men to do what God had commanded them. And as I was preparing this and putting my notes together and praying, I thought, do I leave this more general and do I just leave it generic that she exhorted people to do what God had commanded them? But what does the text say? She commanded a man. She went to the man and encouraged and exhorted him and said, look, you you need to follow into what God has already commanded. She exhorted. And I think that this is appropriate. She wasn't disrespectful. She didn't condemn Barak. She just says, hey, look, this is what God has said in your word. She didn't take away his manliness, his manhood. She says, no, you need to do what God has commanded. And I know that I am so thankful to have a wife that encourages me in God's word. And guys, if you've got a wife that does it lovingly and does it respectfully and says, look, I love you, I love our family, and this is what God's commanded. We need to do what God has commanded. So, Women, do it respectfully, do it gently, but there'll be those times where you'll need to speak into a man's life. It may be your man's life. Don't do it in a heavy-handed way. Do it in a gentle way. Do it respectfully, but saying, hey, this is what God's word has said. Let's walk inside of what God has already commanded. She exhorted men to do what God had commanded them. Verse eight, and Barak said to her, if you go with me, then I will go. 
but if you will not go with me, I will not go. It seems like a little bit of an unfitting response for men, doesn't it? I mean, men are to be warriors. We're to be protectors. We're to be the ones that are leading into to battle. And Deborah having to enter into this, it does show a little bit of the failure in male leadership. But I do want us to see this from the totality of Scripture before we beat up on Barak too bad is, in Hebrews 11, God says that he's a hero of faith. So we might pick on him a little bit and say, the only way he could go to battle is if Deborah went with him and God's just impressed that he went at all. God's like, this was amazing that he went, he had the faith to go. This showed me something. Sometimes my expectations of myself and the expectations that I have of others is not God's expectation. Because think about it. They have 900 chariots of iron. You don't have any. These guys are not warriors. They're farmers. They take care of sheep. And yet, they're going to go take on Sisera, the king of Canaan. And God says, he's a hero of faith. He went. We look at verse 9. So she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So here's another attribute of Deborah is she went to battle with her men. She went to battle with her men. And godly women, you have been doing this for years with your man, with your husband, with your boys, with men of God. Notice what Deborah doesn't do. She doesn't lead the charge. She's not the general. She simply went with him into this battle. And I think there's times with biblical womanhood where there may be the men in your life that are hesitant to take the step that God wants them to take. You don't lead them, you don't force them, but you say, hey, look, I'm with you. I'm gonna be praying with you. God has commanded, God is moving, and so we're gonna go and do this together. It would have been very easy for Deborah to say, what? You want me to go with you? Uh, Excuse me, sir, here's your pink panties. It's time for you to man up, you know what I'm saying? She could have mocked him. She could have given him a lecture and, and said, you know, it's, here's what biblical manhood looks like. Believe it or not, I've heard a lot of responses from men and women from my few years of pastoring. And I can imagine all of the things maybe that a woman would come at Barack with here and, and say, not on your life. I'm not go- going with you. But she says, I'll go with you. I'm not going to lead you. I'm not going to do your job for you. But I'm with you. I'm going to go into battle with you. In verse 10, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. He went up with 10,000 men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. So we're, there we see this picture, and I'm trying to imagine what this looked like. You know, sometimes you just kind of feel out of place sometimes. Sometimes Amber will, you know, will be with a bunch of her lady friends, and I'll just happen to be there, and I'm like, man, I feel really out of place. There's a lot of you know, female conversation that is happening right now. I think it's time for me to leave. Talking about pregnancy and babies and all this kind of stuff. I feel very out of place here. I mean, can you imagine, Deborah? She's with 10,000 guys that are going out to battle and they're, they're burping and doing all other kinds of stuff. And, you know, and then you got Deborah. She's just like, okay, I don't really want to be here, but I'm with my men in battle. And she, she goes up with them. And verse 11 now Zebulun the, the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, 
had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the Terebeth tree at Zanim, which is beside Kedesh. So Heber, the Kenite. The Kenites were the descendants of Moses' father-in-law. So they weren't Israelites, but closely related. So, so Heber had separated himself from his own people, the Kenites, and notice what takes place in verse 12. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Ahinomi, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So that they let Sisera know that Israel is on the move. In verse 13, so Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all of the people who were with him from Herosheth Hagoim to the river Kishon. The stage is set for battle. Israel hasn't entered into the Iron Age. They don't have the ability to make these iron chariots. They're grossly outnumbered. You're a farmer, and you're going up against an army that's got tanks. In verse 14, Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. There must have been some hesitation in Barak. Maybe it's now morning. They've spent the night on Mount Tabor. The stage is set for battle. And Barak's going, this is a bad idea. He gets up and he's got his coffee and he's like, ah, Folgers is in my cup. I'm going home, you know. She could just see all of the things that he was thinking through, so she gives this encouragement. It's the voice of encouragement. She says, up, let's go. God has given the victory. The Lord is before you. She was confident that the Lord was doing this work. And so Barak responds, and he gets his 10,000 men. Verse 15, and the Lord routed Sisera and all of his chariots and his army with the edge of the sword before Barak And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Now turn with me in your Bible to chapter 5, verse 4. Just one page over. It's Deborah's song of victory. And we find a little bit more detail. When it says the Lord routed Sisera, the specifics are found in, in this verse. The second half of the verse, Judges 5, verse 4. The earth trembled and the heavens poured. The clouds also poured water. How good are chariots if all of a sudden the ground becomes unstable? So the earth trembled. Maybe the earth rose up in particular sections, which was a good path or road to drive your chariot on, now has difficulty. Then flash flood, all this mud, these chariots are just now sitting ducks and are defeated by the sword of Barak. So God intervened. As they obeyed the word of God, God intervened. We go back and we look at verse 14 is our, we find that Barak, or excuse me, verse 15, has to chase Sisera because Sisera, this is general of the Canaanites, he's fleeing. He knows he's defeated and he's running. And please hear me on this. As we wrestle with sin, think of Sisera as the area of sin in your life, the sinful nature, this area of defeat that has treated us harshly for 20 years. He's not going to give up easily. He's going to run for his life. And don't settle for a partial victory. Barak could have gone, well, we've got the victory. Why do we need the general? Go for a complete victory. And Barak says, I'm not letting him out of my sight. And that particular struggle in our lives, don't leave an open door to enter back into that compromise. In verse 16, 
But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Hagosheth Hagoim, and all of the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, king of Hazor, the house of Heber, the Kenite. This is the Kenite, Heber, who had alerted Sisera that Israel was on the move. He knows there's peace between them and the Kenites. In fact, the Canaanites had had power over the Kenites. So he says, oh, this is going to be a place of refuge. This can be a place that I'm going to hide out. So he enters in there. And verse 18, and Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. We get to see two pictures of womanhood in the same chapter, which I think is really appropriate. We've got Deborah, but we also have got Jael. Deborah's very much a public figure. She's noticeable. She's out front. She's a prophetess. People come to hear, to hear the word of God. She's got the ear of the general. But Jael, she's a Kenite. She's living in obscurity. She's not even an Israelite. Seems to me that she is taking care of her tent. She's taking care of her home. All the things that, that go with it, she's not out front. And yet God's going to use her in a powerful way. And inside of manhood and womanhood, God makes us different and he puts us in different places in life. He gives us different giftings. And women, maybe you're not a Deborah. You're not an out front type of person. And you go, can God use me? Absolutely. Look at Jael and notice the courage that she has. Jael shows great courage and she meets the enemy head on. I mean, you think about an enemy, and now he's coming to your house. It's like, no, we're not answering the door. Double lock, and we're hiding in the basement with a shotgun. We're, and she goes right on out and says, hey, how are you doing? Why don't you come on here? And, and she shows this intense courage that she has. And women, you have this kind of courage when it comes to an enemy that's coming against your tent, your family. There's a police officer who was given the task to put a perimeter around a high school because this high school had these threats of gang activity happening that day at the school. So the police had to show up with a perimeter. Do you know who also showed up? Is a whole bunch of moms. And these moms were just had this look on their face like saying, make my day, come on, make my day. Those are jails. Those are moms that show tremendous courage to go out and face a a threat. And she does that. And she says, why don't you come on in here? And we'll notice what happens in verse 19. Then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He's been running for his life. Give me a little drink of water. He's dying of thirst. Please give, give me something to drink. And our sinful nature, our Sisera that holds us into bondage will always say, just give me a little bit to drink at first. Oh, you've been doing so good with your anger. You're so better than you used to be. It's okay. You can go off on this person. Look at their driving. Their driving's absolutely miserable. They deserve it, you know? I can't stand it when someone cuts me off and then they flip me off. That's a time that you can pray for me. It's like, what do you mean? You just cut me off and now you're flipping me off. Lord, please, I'm just going to pray a blessing on them in this, this moment, you know? Maybe it's been alcohol, it's been drugs, 
And you know what happens when, when you start drinking. It's not something in moderation. It goes to drunkenness and you do things you regret and there's this little voice in your back of your mind. Just a little bit. You deserve it. You can handle it. Go for it. Oh, just, it's just a little bit of pot. No big deal. Just, just give me a little. It's, it's how our flesh works, doesn't it? And that's what Sisera does. Notice what Jael does in response is she has a plan. She's got a plan. And a godly woman's going to have a plan. She then gives him a jug of milk to drink. If you've been out working in the yard, if you've gone out for a run, and you come in, do you want some milk to drink? No refrigeration. This is more like cottage cheese or yogurt. Probably goat's milk. Could have even been some hair in the goat's milk. She's like, here you go. Here's some warm curdled milk. He's so thirsty, he drinks it. What are you going to do after you drink warm milk? You're going to go to sleep. Remember in the Old Testament, there's illustrations of New Testament principles. What is milk an illustration of? The word. In 1 Peter 2 verse 2, it says, As newborn babes desiring the pure milk of the word, that they may grow thereby. And at no point in our Christian life should we stop craving the word of God. Just as a newborn babe craves milk, we crave the Word of God. And the Word of God gives us victory over the Sisera in our lives, the enemy in our lives. Verse 20, And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and says, Is there any man here? You shall say no. Sin in our lives, the Sisera in our lives, first starts off saying, Just give me a little drink of water. I'm harmless. I'm not going to cause any damage in your life. And then you turn around and sin's wanting absolute control. Cicero wanted absolute control. He's now dictating what's going to happen. If anybody comes, tell them that no man is here. Verse 21, then Jael, Hebrew's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly. Now picture this. You've got a little Middle Eastern woman. Cicero is asleep in the tent. She's got her tent peg, she's got her hammer, and she's walking up really, really softly. Let's see what happens. And she drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary, so he died. This has to be where we got the expression, you took the nail and you hit it on the head, right? She's got the nail. She's got the tent pike. She goes right for the temple, and she's able to drive it all the way down, and he dies. This is another attribute of womanhood, and you're saying, what? I don't understand. How can this be an attribute of womanhood? It's she's faithful in the daily tasks of life. This is something that she did over and over and over again with her tent. They were nomadic. So you've got to pick up your tent and you've got to move it. And she was proficient with the hammer and the nail, as seen here. And God used that faithfulness with daily tasks to bring about victory for the whole nation of Israel. Some of you ladies are saying, I want to be a Deborah. Sitting under a palm tree and speaking the word of God, that sounds pretty nice. But all I've got is stinky goats 
and all these daily tasks that I don't want to do. Some of you ladies stay home with your kids and it's a tough job. Some of you ladies are working really hard to provide for the needs of your family and you're out working to contribute to the financial needs and you're saying, I really can't relate to Deborah. Well, can you relate to Jael? And she was faithful in a daily task in her life and then God used it in a big way. And the same will be true in our lives as well. There's a really important understanding for us as we look into the New Testament as it comes to victory. The nail, it represents the cross. The hammer represents the word. In Jeremiah 23, verse 29, the word of God is called a hammer. Victory comes in our lives when you take the nail of the cross with the hammer of the word and you take it to your Sisera. You give your Sisera, you give this sin struggle the milk of the word. And then you say, you know what? I'm crucified with Christ. I'm risen. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. And you hammer it home. I'm no longer going to live in this sin. In Romans chapter 6, you'll want to write it down. Spend some time with it today. As we see three things. And the first is no. It says no. Understand. It's not just an academic intellectual understanding. That you were crucified with Christ and buried with Christ, and risen in newness of life. So we know that, we understand that. That's where the nail of the cross comes in. Then Romans 6 tells us to reckon the old man dead. The old man is our sin nature. It's our Sisera, this general that used to be in charge of our lives. Sometimes we need to let our sinful nature know, you're dead. Because it's going to cry out, it's going to scream. And the word reckon is a mathematical term where you do the math, you balance the checkbook, and you realize, I'm victorious, I've won, because Christ is risen. And then very importantly and practically, the last thing in Romans 6 verse 11 is to yield, to present yourself. So here my sinful nature is crying out, saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. I go, nope, I know, I remember, I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. I reckon the old man to be dead, and I'm going to yield myself to righteousness. Just like jail, take the hammer And take the nail and nail it to Sisera. Verse 22. And then as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. Deborah's prophecy came true. The victory was won by the hand of a woman. Because Barak was unwilling to go by himself out into battle. One of the sub-themes that I think is happening in Judges is God raises up unlikely deliverers. Ehud was left-handed. That was thought to be a curse. Jael, she's a woman. This wasn't the normal way that battles were won and victories were won. We're going to go on and read that God does a work through Samson. Even with all of his mistakes and his rebellion, God's giving us a message that he uses unlikely vessels. A lot of times we think, God, you could never use me, and Judges answers that question for us. But this is our last stop. This is our our last scene, and it's the door of deliverance. Think about this for Barak. His adrenaline has to be going. He's running and chasing after Sisera. He thinks he's going to enter into a battle, a life or death, and here comes Jael, and she says, why don't you just stand in the door, why don't you look in right over there, and Sisera is dead. And for us, the same is true when we come to the resurrection. When we come to the door of the tomb that's empty, our old man is lying there and is dead. 
And victory has now been won in Christ Jesus. Think of it this way. You've got a boss that you worked for for 20 years, and they were brutal, very authoritative. When they said, jump, you said, how high? Make sure that you get their coffee just the right way. You were paid to think their way, even if they were wrong. Those are the lovely kind of bosses, aren't they? Now, finally, you get another job, and you move on. But you're doing your grocery shopping over here at King Supers, and you're in the frozen food section, and you see your old boss. And all of a sudden, you start to freeze in the frozen food section. And all these memories of them having the control of your life, and you go right back into that mode, and you're just thinking, if they come ask me to do something, I'm, I'm going to say yes. And this boss is so heavy-handed that he's going to come over, she's going to come over and say, hey, I want you to get the rest of this stuff in the grocery store, take it out to my car, and you're about ready to do it, but then it hits you, they're not my boss anymore. They don't have control of my life anymore. And you give a nice smile, and you walk away, and you move on with your day, right? You know that you have now freedom. Think of a coach. If you played sports, and this coach would always have you do push-ups, always have you do sit-ups, and do all of this calisthenics and run around the football field, run around the basketball court. Now the season's over and you see them in 7-Eleven and you're getting a Slurpee at 7-Eleven. And here comes the coach and the coach is like, give me 25. And your immediate response is, I got to give him 25. And you drop down for push-ups and then it hits you. Hey, I don't have to do what you say anymore. And our sinful nature is that way. Our sinful nature is going to come and say, be bitter, you deserve it. Just give in to this. And we have the freedom in Christ Jesus to know that the old man has been crucified with Christ. Stand at the door of deliverance and rejoice in Christ. Verse 23, so on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Kale, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Once again, we see God bringing about deliverance. Are you at that place where you're crying out, God, deliver me? God, deliver me. We go back to this original question. Does God love me? Does God have a good plan for my life? Does he desire deliverance from a pattern of sin? Absolutely. Maybe you've been searching and searching for the power for deliverance. You're thinking, well, if I just do this and if I do that, then maybe I'll be delivered from this struggle and this pattern of sin. How's that working for you? Always leads to defeat in my life. Get to the place where we cry out to Jesus. God, would you deliver me? Would you work in my life? I don't want you to get the wrong idea from this message. It's not that in most of our lives that there's going to be this breakthrough and we're never going to struggle again. That breakthrough is called heaven. <laughs> Until we go home to be with the Lord, we have to kill the Sisera in our lives on a daily basis, amen? On a moment-to-moment basis of reminding our sinful nature, you're dead and I'm alive to Christ. But also, please hear this, the victory's already been won in Christ. It's already been done. We believe it for the forgiveness of sins. We also need to receive it and believe it and walk in it for the power to no longer live in sin. God's got a wonderful, abundant life for us. Let's stand together and let's pray.
Father, we want to take a, a moment and we want to pray for each other. We want to pray for those on our right. We want to pray for those on our left. Lord, those that we know, those that we don't know. But we understand that we do all struggle with sin. And we ask that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, that you would bring victory in their lives. In areas where they've experienced defeat, in areas that they're discouraged. And Lord, we also want to pray for our own souls, our own hearts, God. That you would do a work in us, that we could really appropriate and apply and live in the power of the cross. So Lord, would you deliver us? Would you bring that freedom? We also do pray for something different than the book of Judges. We don't want deliverance, bondage, deliverance, bondage, but we want to walk close with you. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Just one more moment.